News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city. I'm Katie Honan here with Harry Siegel. Chrissy Greer will be joining us in a bit. But right now, let's jump right in with just some of the news from another jam-packed week in New York. Four fire department chiefs filed a lawsuit Monday to stop their upcoming demotions by Commissioner Laura Kavanaugh, a decision from her that they say was retaliatory, claiming the commissioner has, quote, waged a war against FDNY's most experienced and important operational commanders, end quote. But in leaked audio previously reported by the Daily News, Kavanaugh had asked her chiefs in a staff meeting for, quote, out-of-the-box thinking and said firmly she wouldn't tolerate bullying. The chiefs responded with 16 questions, 10 of which were reportedly about vacation policy and the use of department take-home vehicles. The FDNY told reporters they would not comment on pending legislation. Meantime, the city's parks department is installing new modular bathrooms, five of them, one in each borough, as part of a potty pilot program. That's a pricey potty pilot program for peeing or the other thing in a city park. The new modular bodies cost about $185,000 per unit, but the total cost for the five of them could hit as high as $5.3 million, the city says, uh, more than a million per. Some of that is pipes and wiring, and some of it is how everything in New York City seems to end up costing more somehow. Shout out to the MTA. Uh, I, I will note today is the first start of petitioning for the upcoming elections. We have city council, district attorney, uh, a few other positions on the ballot. Um, it's, it's snowed for the first time, so maybe the petitions will get wet. But we will close um, with this intro talking about Deputy Mayor Phil Banks, who hosted a public safety briefing last week where he spoke with the police and fire and corrections commissioners about what's happening in New York City. He took two questions submitted by New Yorkers and then answered a few more from reporters. But what Banks did not want to answer was a pretty benign question about his role in the administration and why he was the best person to host this briefing, telling a reporter that his question was, quote, not a question. It was a question. The deputy mayor doth protest too much, methinks. Uh, we still also in New York City, we don't have a rat czar yet. Maybe we'll see that rat czar on the next uh, Phil Banks show. And we will also see what what this continuing public facing of Deputy Mayor Phil Banks, the unindicted co-conspirator from a large NYPD corruption trial, what it will mean uh, going forward in the Adams administration. Let me just say, Banks has kept a uh, very low profile to this point. And he has this briefing on a Friday, and it's supposed to be we're answering questions from the community. He said, uh, you know, basketball metaphor. Um, we want to get stuff done, but the sixth man is you, the community, the citizens, the stakeholders, so forth. He said this in this briefing where he declined to explain what his job is, why it exists, and how it relates to the job of the police commissioner, who, of course, is a uh, black woman, and that's something Adam swore to do, the promise to do prior to taking the office. That That's what he said was not a question. And he said one other thing there I, I just want to draw attention to. Um, so what this briefing, to answer questions from the public, where two questions from members of the public got read, right? So so you're picking the questions. Two. Um, he also said this was the first episode 
I like the word episode. Bank said, according to the Daily News account, this is the first. And Katie, we've talked about this on the podcast previously, but and this is not unique to the Adams administration. You can feel the ways in which this administration is trying to script their own shows and episodes. The mayor's got a podcast. Phil Banks has uh, episode one. It's a pilot. <laughs> Maybe they'll reboot <laughs> after this. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, but, you know, I love your thoughts as, as a reporter. And there's nothing new about this uh, except the moment and the technology, I suppose, and, and, and the players. Uh, about this administration trying to route around the press and just push their own message out directly, including in package content that reminds people a lot of, of what uh, journalists traditionally do in terms of uh, uh, briefings and, and podcasts and so forth. Yeah. And, you know, keeping with this, the show, right, that we had on Friday. Um, yeah. Two questions from New Yorkers. Allegedly, I remain skeptical until I hear from the New Yorkers. The The final question that he didn't like, uh, asked by Joe Anud of Politico, you know, it's a simple question. And, and the answer, it wasn't even a combative question. And the answer was supposed to be simple. You know, his his answer should have been, um, well, yeah, you know, I'm the deputy mayor for public safety. It's not just public safety is not just the police. It's everything that goes in it. And that's what I oversee. Boom. There's your answer. There's your quote for the story. You know, as reporters, we're not always out to get people. Sometimes we actually just want quotes to put in our stories. Um, and yeah, I'm sure every mayor, if they could, would have done the same exact thing if they had the technology, right? I'm sure a beam would have had his own podcast if that was a thing. And obviously they use other media at the time, but they're trying to script and they're trying to show what they want. And even the questions asked by New Yorkers, allegedly, were sort of reflective of what they'd already discussed. I don't know if that was yeah. a coincidence or a coincidence or if it was they were selected that way. I'd love to know how many questions they got from the um from New Yorkers because I only saw the announcement of this the day before on Thursday. Yeah. So oh, they haven't put out a transcript by the way. Just just to add to the list there, which they yes. generally do with things like this. Yeah, you know, we we recorded it so we had that audio. But yeah, this is you know, again, it's it's nothing new with it. It's not I don't even think Mayor Adams is the most egregious of it, right? This is just what mayors do. They have this honeymoon period and then they suddenly realize, oh, I don't like quote unquote negative coverage, right? If it's just fair and balanced coverage on what's going on, they don't like it. And then they kind of find their own ways to message people. They find their own ways to speak with people. And I will say Mayor Adams, compared to Bill de Blasio, was much more out with out in the public and out with people. So maybe in, in maybe in this way, it's much more successful than other mayors in terms of trying to to reach them where they're at and not through the media. I remember Bill de Blasio, uh, I think at the end of year one, uh, telling Rolling Stone <laughs> oh, that yeah. there's something special happening in New York and then whining to this uh, national publication the New Yorkers just didn't get it. They, they didn't appreciate the special thing they had with him. And again, like like this is not particular to de Blasio or Adams. Every administration is frustrated that the, the things they think are important aren't there, that the press is forcing other issues, distracting things, and cutting away from the stuff they're doing. But that said, you know, it is striking to see a uh, deputy mayor who's had almost no press profile. It's occasionally shown up more recently around some of the weed stuff. And as the administration has been sort of trying to buy time and space there, 
uh, you know, show up for an episode that is meeting the public and the public isn't there. And there's two questions piped in and he won't say, which again is not a trick question or a trap, what his job is and, and just explain how this how this works here. So I personally, as, a, as, as, as an editor and a column writer, I think I can be a tad more opinionated. I find this uh, I find this very frustrating, the sort of over-defensiveness that gets in an administration's own way, uh, where, where they won't answer simple questions because they suspect everything is a trap. Mm. On the Zoom, we've got Chrissy Greer joining us. Hello. Chrissy, what do you think? Hey, hey. Sorry. I was talking to our friend Bradley Tusk. I'll be on his podcast whenever that podcast airs. We were talking about... Our good friend, the mayor. Um, and I was saying how I'm not a fan of Phil Banks. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. Um, but he's got a TV show. Is that it? He, he did. He did. He did a, a, a press briefing on Friday uh-huh. that he said was the first episode. He likes the word episode. And this is him talking to New Yorkers, except there were no New Yorkers there. And like they read two questions. And then he got mad at one of the questions he was asked, which was, um, there's a police commissioner and you're the deputy mayor for public safety. How does that right. work? And, and he said, I'm, I'm not going to dignify that with an answer. <laughs> Why okay. not? Then what is the point of the press briefing? Um, you know, I, I gave Eric Adams a grade of B minus C plus on the podcast just now. Um, but I think part of my issue is that Phil Banks is still in the picture. Uh, and I get loyalty and all that jazz. But, you know, I I don't see how this is an overlap. We do know that Eric Adams chose the police commissioner because she's not from New York. Um, you know, she, she is this outsider. And so that still gives... Well, I would actually, not to, but I would push back. She grew up in New York City. She just was over the border, you know? But professionally, her professional life is over the border. Yeah. Like, she didn't come through the NYPD. Am I correct? Right. Right. right? And so, yeah, no, you're, yeah. Like, yeah, she knows I don't know why I'm riding hard for Nassau County. Yeah, exactly. So it's like professionally, she knows Nassau County policing, but not necessarily NYPD policing, which I think gives banks an outside uh, amount of influence and power, which I don't like because I find him to be a problematic character in the orbit of the mayor. Chrissy, have you been following this uh, FDNY business with Kavanaugh and the chief demoted now suing? And even in that lawsuit, one of the chiefs who voluntarily resigned his rank is now back the rank he voluntarily resigned. Um, and, and all of them are saying, I have no idea the courts could possibly get involved here, that they have a legal right to remain chiefs when the commissioner has uh, told them to take different positions, as, as new commissioners often do. Yeah. Um, shout out to Laura Kavanaugh because, you know, having done a quick stint in the FDNY when I was a Coro fellow, I recognize that the gender dynamics of that institution are calcified on a whole host of levels. And so I think that she's trying to make some deep-seated changes for some really historic and problematic behavior that's been allowed to just kind of be a part of the culture and I think a lot of people aren't taking kindly to the fact that she's this quote unquote outsider coming in, making changes. But we know that there have been some systemic issues with the FDNY, not just about race, but obviously gender and dare I say, you know, sort of ethnic enclaves. Um, and I think that, you know, having someone who has been in New York for a while, but, you know, it does have kind of an organizational uh, foundation uh, sort of professionally 
is going to shake things up in some really uncomfortable ways. And so I think that you, you're seeing a lot of these kind of old guard cats who are just apoplectic that this woman, this young woman, um, compared to, you know, the age of some of these guys that are are being pushed out, and rightfully so, um, can't imagine that, you know, things have to change. And just because things have, quote unquote, always been a particular way doesn't mean that they should remain that way. And so I think if we're really going to make some substantive changes in the FDNY and serve as a leader for other fire departments across the country, uh, these hard things need to happen. And unfortunately, she's got the target on her back. But in the long run, I think it'll be for the good of the city and, and honestly for the good of fire departments across the country. Well, uh, if I could just chime in, what I find interesting, you know, the media coverage of all this, and we didn't cover it at the city, you, you know, it was a post-Daily News, they kind of went back and forth with covering it. And I love that the chiefs got mad when the audio of their meeting was leaked, because yes. <laughs> didn't you leak, you know, whoever leaked this story in the first place, um, you know, and that audio I feel was pretty damning. I didn't listen to it, but what the Daily News was reporting that she's asking for changes. She's asking for what she called out of the box thinking. And they're concerned about, well, can I drive my car to Nassau County? Can I drive second mention in Nassau County in the podcast? I don't know why. Can I do this? Can we do this? So the vacation days roll over that kind of thing. <laughs> and look, you know, I'm, I'm sure having someone who is not herself a firefighter who was brought to the FDNY, um, almost like in a political position by Bill de Blasio, I can understand why some firefighters would 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 not trust her. But it's interesting to see where the union support is because the UFA, which represents the firefighters, are supportive of her. And the UFOA, who represent these chiefs and, and more officers and, and higher ups, they are critical of her. So I find that really interesting. You know, I talked to a bunch of people I know who are firefighters. Some people were split. People said they didn't like her. I heard a lot of sexist stuff, but, you know, one battalion chief I spoke to was like, you know what? A lot of these chiefs think they're the shit and then they retire. And guess what? The next day the fires get put out, the lives get saved and life goes on without them. So I think maybe there's a bit of that in this as well. You know, I can understand I would never want to be a firefighter because it's an incredibly difficult job. And these guys, because they're all guys, they've, they've seen the department through the worst times in its history with 9-11 and other things that's happened since. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're not the commissioner. She has the job. And um, I think from that leaked video, what she was asking for was not crazy. So that's me. I'm not a firefighter. I can never be one. I think you I think you hit the nail on the head, though, um, Katie, which is I think a lot of these guys secretly do want to be the commissioner. And they think that they can do the job of the commissioner. Uh, and they're not. And they need to just kind of sit with that. And I think it burns them up to see this woman doing it and also doing it relatively well. Um, listen, I spent a little bit of time inside of the fire department and the gender dynamics were wild to say, no I mean, the gender dynamics were so wild. I was like, we can't even get to the racial dynamics just yet. Cause this is like, this is yeah one through 12. Yeah, we'll get yeah, to the yeah, racial exactly. dynamics at number 13. While we're talking about the FDNY the pivot for just a second, uh, colleague that the city uh, reported this week uh, about the EMTs and paramedics who are concerned with the new contract pattern that just got set with the mayor and uh, 1199 that in effect workers, uniform workers who, you know, race you and all that listeners know we've had a uh, paramedic Lieutenant Anthony Almahara on a couple times in the last year talking about some of this. 
but they, they basically are going to be starting at a, a minimum wage uh, by the time this contract is done. And there are all sorts of concerns there, which we're seeing all around the city about retention. This has been a longstanding union fight where they want to have parity with the other uniform services. Uh, they want to have paid sick leave, which they don't. And it's interesting to see as the city and the state finally have a decent minimum wage and that goes up and, and then city workers negotiate you know, for pay above and beyond that. The pressures this creates uh, farther down the, the, the pay scale and for the one uniform group of workers that doesn't tend to go to arbitration or to fight these things out. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that dynamic plays out in this budget and, of course, libraries, uh, which I believe are, 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 as Christina has brought up several times on the podcast, are in for cuts as of now in both uh, the city and the state budget, although we'll see if that ends up being a ritual threat of cuts and then restoration. It just kills me because it would be a rounding error in the budget to have all the city's libraries open seven days a week uh, uh, consistently and with clear, clear uh, hours. And yet the fight is always, you know, can we keep the six days a week and, and 36 hours or whatever each branch is open now? And then council members have to fight and we end up uh, at the end usually with those hours uh, uh, restored. And uh, it just seems bad and backward to me. Yeah. And, you know, in in my coverage of the, what was the executive budget when it was released, this idea of um, the library people I spoke to said, look, we've already done more with less. It's sort of like you can cut and cut and cut yeah. until you, you reach the bone and then that there's nothing else left to cut. Um, you know, I would love if all the libraries had more, you know, I, I forget what year they moved it to a sixth day, but, you know, there were some days, not all the days were open, although it was very confusing trying to, you know, keep up. And I actually lived down the street from a library, but unfortunately, I, I can rarely even go to it because of uh, just when it's open. I'm usually at work. I mean, I just think that, you know, libraries serve such an important function for young people, you know, not just the books, but just kind of a safe meeting place for kids yes. to be. Um this is, you know, as much as Adams talks about this kind of beginning investment instead of pulling people out of the 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 river, you know, you go upstream and find out how it is that they fell into the river in the first place. The library is the place that prevents them from falling into the river. Like this is it's clear as day. We've got data. We know it. So like I don't understand if we're trying to make sure that we don't have to so much money in policing in the back end and incarceration in the back end and juvenile detention centers in the back end. Why are we not investing in the front end, which is so very clearly libraries and computers and librarians, you know, like every single, you know, successful writer who's gotten in trouble and, you know, corrected themselves. It's like, it's because they had a librarian who was like, Hey, you're, you know, you're a little restless spirit. Why don't you read this particular book? And then they see themselves in something, and then all of a sudden, it's like the the course of their life has changed forever. Like, like I love books, and I love kids who get saved by books. But like for kids who don't care about books that much, or their parents, or whatever, just having like a safe ass, boring, neutral place to go to after school is is just gigantic. Yeah, I mean, part of it is the location. You know, I'm not saying that everyone's going to find themselves in a book, but like libraries also have computers not all of them but you know a lot of them have computers they've got magazines they just have a place that's like either warm in the winter or cool in the summer you know like it's not yeah yeah the street <laughs> like like 
it's not that difficult. Like, I don't understand why we're trying to pretend like we don't know how to solve these problems. If anything, we should be opening more libraries. Like, Katie shouldn't have, you know, some rando hours where she can't go in. It's like, we should have libraries open as long as possible so that we can make sure that, you know, we prevent as many people from yeah, falling it is about me. as possible. <laughs> Wait, yeah. I, I wanted to bring up one thing, and I, I missed this story um, yesterday, but it kind of goes full circle to speaking of Phil Banks and Long Island, but the Post is reporting that two of the, the top brass of the NYPD, James Essig and Juanita Holmes, are among 16 people who've registered for the civil service test to be the chief, for the chief's exam in Suffolk County. You know, I mean, um, wondering if there is some mass exodus is not the right word in, in, in terms of top brass, but, you know, it's an interesting story to look at because there is always people moving around and um, we see how that works. But I think that's sort of an interesting story if that is the case. And it's a good scoop on them to because it gives a sense of people who want to leave or at least want the opportunity to, to say, you know, whether or not they take it to have that opportunity. And um, I know it pays a lot of money. So uh, it is a good job in that regard. But I thought those are pretty interesting because they're two pretty prominent members of the NYPD. Both, both chiefs with 20 years in. Uh, Winita Holmes, who's the chief of training, was also just in the news for uh, both stories in the Post for having a training uh, with Cardi B, which may have been part of yeah. Cardi B's community service. It's nice that, that that she's showing up for police, and I understand you do not choose your own community service, but I do think it would be very cool to have Cardi B at a library. And as a you know, <laughs> a politically aware, smart person who who is sometimes jumped in with these things and clearly knows uh, her mind and her city, it would be a, a cool issue for her to engage in. And you know, Chrissy was talking about uh, you know books and and write, young writers discovering themselves and all that, and that's awesome. But like even for uh, Kids who aren't going to uh, to do that, just having like a a like warm, neutral place to like go to after school, like a little hub in each neighborhood is like a tr- and the computers is a tremendously valuable function. Yeah, computers, magazines, just a warm place in the winter, a cool place in the summer. You know, a place where kids can just kind of convene, you know, and and talk and be. It's it's really important, and it's just if we if we talk about sort of preventing things from happening on the back end, and we invest in the front end, there's no clearer way than doing that with libraries in all communities. Amen. That's the upstream solution. And not to mention all the programming they do, language learning, job help, resume building, everything is there. You know, the least I could speak mainly of the Queen's Library because that's my library, but they do a ton of work and. Every year, it seems to be an issue in, in making sure that they have the fun, the funds that they need. Shout out to the city's bizarre <laughs> re-library system and all of the additional jobs and patronage opportunities that allows for. And God bless the uh, libraries themselves and, and the librarians. They, they're one of New York's good, special places. F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're part of The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash give if you'd like to pitch in. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists. Find it all at popula.com. Our hosts for this episode were me, Christina Greer, Katie Honan, and Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer. Our engineer is Adam Kamara. 
Thank you for listening, for joining us, and making it this far. Be kind, be well, be warm, and we'll be back soon.